Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Greg Canella to the Philosophy Podcast. Greg is the head coach at UMass, been there for 28 years, has been to the NCAA title game, has been NCAA coach of the year, has been to nine NCAA tournaments. Um, and um, Greg is one in the, in the top 10 in wins in uh, Division One men's lacrosse all time. So, Greg, welcome to the show. So fired up to have you on board. I'm fired up too. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, man. The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. Well, I usually kick off this podcast with um, talking about mentors and in a coaching journey so you started out at Lindbrook high school and then made your way to the junior college ranks right out of school won a championship and then made your way to UMass tell us a little bit about that and some of the some of the experiences you had on your way to getting to UMass in the first place because as people may or may not know Greg graduated from UMass was an assistant at UMass before he became the head coach at UMass yeah um well, I guess it starts, you mentioned Limburg, so it starts at Limburg. And uh, my dad was a uh, successful football coach and lacrosse coach at Limburg High School. He went on to become the uh, assistant principal there, worked there for over 40 years. So I think as when you talk about mentors, uh, my dad was uh, the first, first mentor that I had growing up. Uh, he got all of us, I have four brothers, he got us all involved in, in playing sports. Um, and I, I loved, personally, I loved every sport. Um, but they, you know, he got us involved in lacrosse. It was a sport that he played uh, at Cortland State. He was a football player, grew up in Harlem in New York City as a basketball and football player, went to Cortland State and was convinced by his lacrosse roommates, uh, excuse me, his football roommates to play lacrosse. And some, some of the guys that uh, went on and, and were tremendous high school coaches upstate New York. Don Quinn being one of them in Rochester, New York. Um, so he was the first mentor. And then obviously I had older brothers, four older brothers kind of pushed me into playing lacrosse and, and, and staying involved. And I always went and watched their games and was manager of their games. And even at the high school level, when I was playing youth lacrosse, we only practiced a couple of days a week. And I went to all the high school practices and high school games as I could. Uh, and Tony Seaman, uh, was the next mentor that, that we all had. He was a teacher in our high school. He coached us. My older brothers threw lacrosse. He only coached me for one year as a sophomore at Limburg High School and moved on to the college ranks, CW Post, Penn, Hopkins, and then Towson. Um, That's amazing you had Tony Seaman as a high school coach, and people forget that he was a high school coach before he went on to the Hall of Fame level. Tremendous high school coach, tremendous uh, – soccer coach as well he actually set a record 
He was my freshman soccer coach. He won like 120 straight games on a freshman soccer team. It was like in Sports Illustrated and all this stuff. So, uh, but in, he, was a, he was a real innovator uh, for our sport in terms of some of the things he did. He was a, it was the first time I was introduced to like interval training in terms of running on the track and doing uh, 200s and 400s and, and such. Um, he also was a guy that was, uh, 10 man riding in high school. I mean, yeah. no one ever did this. And he brought that to the college ranks. He was very yeah. successful. He was also one of the first guys that I remember inverting middies behind. Wow. And having midfielders dodge from behind, even in high school when we did it. Guys that were really good athletes. Uh, if we had a good attack that year, he would put the fourth attackman and, and, and invert him or wing dodge him. So uh, all those things that I saw through just watching and then playing yeah. for really, really cool things for me yeah. in the future. And I was fortunate to um, also work with Larry Glenz, who's in the National Coaches Hall of Fame for high schools uh, at Limburg High School. Uh, another guy that was a tremendous coach, he was more of a, uh, a guy that motivated us and was really, really positive with us and, and kind of encouraged us to kind of go out there and be ourselves and explore what we could do athletically. Uh, so that was another great mentor and another person that I, when I look back on it, uh, I, I try to be Larry Glenn's every day in my job in terms of how he motivated the individuals, uh, but he also motivated the team. That was kind of my first view of that. Listen, my dad was an old school guy, tried out for the Giants, was Vince Lombardi was his you know, mentor, like a guy that he loved and looked up to. And he was my way of the highway. Larry Glenn's was the total opposite of that. He was the first, you know, he, he got into coaching probably late 60s, 70s. And he was one of those first guys that said, hey, this is about the players. This is about the guys. It's about those guys going out there and, and, and using their athleticism. And I'm going to allow them to do this. I'm going to encourage them to do it. Uh, so it was great, great for me to see that. Uh, you mentioned Nassau Community College. I first went to the University of Maryland, and uh, Dick Adele was my coach there wow. for a year and a half. Um, I did leave to come back, and I played for uh, Rich Speckman and George Powers at, at Nassau Community College. What an experience that was. Uh, uh, coach Speckman just got inducted into the National Hall of Fame this year, yeah. and he was a system guy that uh, each year you had, you know, a totally new team. And his system, you worked on it from February 1st until the end of May or whenever the championship was. And if you, if you didn't, if you weren't part of that system, you were kind of out. So you, you played as part of something. And that was really the first time that within, if you want to call it a machine or a system, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> that you were just part of a spoke on that wheel. And, and all the spokes had to kind of, and it was a different group then, you know, you had guys from all over on Long Island. Some kids are good students, some kids not great students. You know, it was different personalities that he had to mesh together uh, each year. And it was amazing to see that because, um, uh, you know, I, when I first got there, I'm like, how is this going to work? You know, you, know you, had th you had three guys on attack that all wanted the ball and all wanted to, to do something differently. And he convinced us that we had to share it within everybody on, on the team. So that's another thing that I still preach uh, today. Right? Mm -hmm. And then leaving Nassau, uh, <clears throat> I was able to come up here to UMass. 
it was totally different. You know, it was more similar to Larry Glenn's uh, coach Garber at the time um, <clears throat> was in his uh, late fifties, early sixties. Uh, he was very laid back. He was a uh, preparation guy. All right. Prepare. Uh, John Wooden was one of his mentors. He was a prepared during the week and you guys are going to play on the weekend. Right. Um, but very fair, very honest, um, uh, strong passion for the game, strong passion for the guys. I, when I first got here as a transfer, I didn't have housing. I stayed at his house. He invited me over. They cooked dinner for me. I mean, just incredible yeah. stuff that you would never, you, you, you could never do today. Right. Um, so very fortunate to have those, those mentors, um, w w playing for those guys. Yeah. And then before you move on, let's just talk yeah. a little bit about those UMass days because yeah, yeah. there were some unbelievable teams. And so <laughs> I was a freshman in 86. And that was your first year right. at UMass. And I remember the attack with Canella and Carmine. And who was the third guy on that attack? Kelly Carr. Kelly Carr. And I mean, Tom Carmine, the matchup between Darren Muller and Tom Carmine was Incredible. unbelievable. Two of the fastest, most athletic guys. People have no idea how good Tom Carmine was, too. I mean, like, so quick well I played uh, indoor with him with the Blazers and like literally he could like he would just he would like split to his left and then he'd jump back and just beat you to his right and then if he wanted to jump back he could jump back again I mean this guy was so fast and quick but you guys had such a run of I mean rattle off some of the players I mean you had player after player in all positions yeah in those days it was you know obviously Sal Casio Scott Hiller Tim Sudan Right. Uh, you mentioned Tommy Carmine, Kelly Carr, Jimmy Mack, Greg, Jimmy Mack, Greg Fisk. Jimmy Mack was kind of after, after me. Yeah, he was a little after. He was a little after. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, Sal was really the guy that solidified he was. Know, what, what we did. You know, I can remember uh, Guy Van Arsdale was the assistant coach with Coach Garber. And Guy Van Arsdale used to run white defense. What's white defense? He said, no one's sliding until they score on Sal. You know, sometimes this went into the second or third quarter of the game. Right? <laughs> so we wouldn't slide until then. And meanwhile, uh, Burnsy's going right over everybody. Jerry, yeah, Jerry Burns is on the team. Uh, Tommy Aldridge. I mean, they were really good defensemen. Jerry's, you know, 6'5", yep. over the head. Uh, Tommy was a West Jenny guy, a very solid positional guy. Uh, just tremendous, tremendous players. I was very fortunate to, to be part of those teams. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned Tom Carmine, probably the best lacrosse player nobody knows about, you know, yes. just the, the, what he did on the field and how he elevated certainly my game. And I think everybody else's was incredible, but he was a guy that, you know, one year that I played with him, he had 40 goals and 35 assists. Then the next year he had, you know, uh, 35 goals and 45 assists. He was a guy that could do everything. He, it, yeah. he wasn't just a goal scorer or a feeder. He did everything. He rode hard. Uh, he could have he played any position on the field with his athleticism. Just tremendous, tremendous player. Yeah. One and time. Sal, Sal was so off the charts. And people don't realize how good of an athlete he was. Tremendous. You kind of look at him and people are like, ah, you know, fat Sal, da 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 da. But he actually, like, he would beat you. He would beat a fast attackman to the end line or a sideline on the shot. He'd, he could, like, run the ball. His hands were so quick and good. Um, you know, we never beat UMass in my four years, although we only played you three times. Because right. in 1987, our game was canceled with the passing of Vinnie Marinelli. Remember that? Right. I do remember that. He was a guy that 
uh, we all played against in high school. Elma yeah. was our rival at Humber High yep. School. I do remember that. But yeah, Sal, we couldn't score against Sal in practice. It was it was brutal. Sometimes we just go in there and try to tackle him because he'd stop <laughs> so many times. <laughs> I remember. So how about this? In the, my senior year, I played in the North South game, and Sal and Schmoles. Paul oh, Smoller and Sal Acacia were our goalie. How about that? Those guys went head-to-head. -head. They played in the playoffs a couple times. I think they were one-on-one -on -one against each other in the NSA playoffs as well. Uh, two, two great, great goalies, great personalities. The thing with Sal, that you, you mentioned, tremendous athlete. He was a high school linebacker, uh, and he was very, very good linebacker. But he was also on his lacrosse team. His senior year of high school, they, didn't, they won one game. I think they were 1-22 on the season. Wow. And he comes to UMass, and he just turns everything around for, for the program. Yeah, four-year All-American. Um, and back then, the Hill was incredible. I mean, you know, people just don't realize what it was like to go to a college lacrosse game at UMass uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, kegs <laughs> were allowed on the Hill. There was grass. You know, the whole student, you know, population seemed to be out there. My senior year, I remember them just chanting my name literally every time I <laughs> Jamie, I got oh, blown up. Lars, Timmy threw me a really high pass that was kind of a, it was like a, it was a long ball that was supposed to be like a good clearing pass. And it was a good pass except for like pseudo Tim Sudan saw it. And Tim Sudan was like, a, a, he's like a man horse. Right. You know what I mean, like he's just like such an athlete and so fast. And he was, he could shoot it so hard, but he would also blow you up. And so he saw that ball in the air and I tried to look it off. I'm standing there kind of pretending like it's not coming, but he knew it was coming. And then it took a little bounce. And then I got blown up right into the hill, got beers thrown on me. Um, yep, yep. Those are the days. It, it was interesting for all of us as players and, and I'm sure for the visitors as well, just to, to take in that type of crowd. We had never played you know, in front of those crowds or, you know, and it was very exciting for us. We, it fired us up and uh, just fun experiences w with the people. And they, yeah, like you said, they, they would back the vans up and back their pickup trucks up at the top of the hill. People were burying kegs in, in the hill as well. Uh, That's right. You got to bury them. Hide them a little bit. None of this, none of this, you know, uh, could ever happen, you know, today. So th those are really fond memories and, and uh, really good times. Anytime the, you had nice weather, uh, it was a packed house up on Garber. And in fact, my senior year, um, <clears throat> we played um, a few games on Garber and it got out of control. Uh, you know, we played Army and it was about 9,000 people up there. So the, the, the UMass police wouldn't allow us to play on Garber when we played Syracuse and we were forced to go down to football stadium oh, and yeah. play Cuse, like 13,000 people down there. So uh, pretty, pretty, pretty cool uh, environment. We would love to play that game on Garber, though. Is it true at a Syracuse UMass game that the fans just kept throwing oranges if, if Syracuse would score or whatever? And then finally, like, it was costing UMass, you know, yeah. like penalties. And they were, like, announcing, like, please do not throw oranges anymore. And people just kept chucking oranges. That's true. And I can remember Coach Garber going over there with a megaphone and saying, please, you know, don't throw oranges and it's hurting us. We're getting penalized every time, you know, we score and, you know, we want to be in this game. And, uh, you know, I think that, that week in the dining hall, they lost more oranges than, than uh, what would happen in, in, in down in Florida on harvest time, you know. Man, the talent level of those Syracuse – and I've seen the – net. you know, back, back in the day, everything was on Nesson, New England Sports Network. 
right? And yep. John Vassallo was the, uh, who's now at ESPNU. He was like the color. I mean, he was the uh, play-by-play guy. And, and then you got, um, what's his name? Um, uh, the, the, the Irish Rova, they'd be talking. He had nicknames for Glover, Steve Glover. Steve Glover would be out there. He was a UNH guy, right? was yes the UNH guy he was doing he had the thickest Boston accent ever and he did all the games and he'd call Jimmy Mack the Irish Rova he had nicknames for everybody and those were the days you watch that Syracuse UMass game those games with the Gate brothers and Zalberti and yeah incredible incredible one game Sal Sal was on fire kept him in the game was a 10-9 game um they had kept the, the the sprinklers on in the stadium the night before for some reason and it was a beautiful day but the field was a mess and Sal saved everything in the game and um they wound up losing 10-9 unfortunately but uh incredible car you know that was I think that was 88 so I was still in school I was graduating because of my transfer and I I was able to watch that game yeah unbelievable stuff so then uh you made a move to coaching at Stony Brook for four years under coach Espy yes yes And, and, and that was uh that was a great move uh, for me personally. You know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to coach. I thought I was going to be a, <clears throat> a high school uh, PE teacher and coach. And this opportunity, actually, Mike Candell, who is a uh, Newsday uh, writer who I, I play with his son here uh, at Limburg High School. His son played at Amherst College. But um, he had convinced me to, to go interview with John. Uh, you know, listen, John was – like the first guy that introduced me into college coaching and how to be a college coach in terms of recruiting, writing letters, uh, how do you get out to the kids. And right, I was hired because at Stony Brook at the time in 1988, they elevated men's lacrosse and women's soccer into Division One, those two sports only. And then eventually they went to D2 and everything and then D1 and everything. Yeah. But that's why I was hired. So it was a like a grassroots thing. We kind of had to grow the program and John, uh, uh, you know, connected all the nuts and bolts for me. Uh, Again, introed me into all the nuances within coaching, offense, defense, clearing, riding, uh, just a tremendous mentor. I see him every year at the convention. You know, we sit down, we talk about lacrosse, X's and O's. Uh, Just great, great coach. Um, Someone at, uh, you you know, personally, uh, I I could never repay uh, for what he's done for me for to, to, boost me into college across. That's awesome. And then you made a move back in what, 1993? Was it 93? Yeah, fall of 92. So the the spring season of 93, um, Ted Garber had had an opening here. Ted was the head coach for two years already. And I jumped back in. I really jumped at the job. You know, Coach Garber was still here, still alive. Uh, I I sat down and spoke to him about it. And and, uh, he was very positive about the move for me. So, uh, yeah, I came back. I was fortunate to have a guy like Mark Millen on the team and Billy Adele, who, who's out in Denver with you, yep. uh, you know, on the team, two, two guys that were uh, tremendous leaders, uh, Tommy Lepresti in, in the goal. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, was, it was a good experience coming back, and I, and I felt at that time we really needed some change here, and I, I, hopefully I helped uh, uh, Ted with that. You know, Ted was also a tremendous mentor a guy that was uh, very similar to his dad in terms of coaching, uh, uh, very laid back in terms of, the, you know, uh, what his style was, um, you know, getting the guys to just go, kind of go out and play, 
you know, coach them during the week, prepare them, and then kind of let them go on, on, on game day. And, and um, again, that, you know, at that time I was young, I was full of, uh, you know, a lot of anger, full of a lot of trying to get out there and prove myself as a coach, you know, yeah. and, and Ted was a guy that said, listen, you know, this is, first of all, if the season's a marathon, the year's a marathon, this is a marathon, recruiting's a marathon, sit back, relax a little bit and enjoy every day and, 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 and coach these guys up each and every day. And, you know, I took that to heart. It was, it was uh, a really good experience for me to be with Ted for those two years. Do you remember the um, 1993 uh, Yale UMass game? I do. I at do. Yale. Okay. So I was the assistant at Yale. I was in my third season there and we, we had like a 12, five lead on you either yeah. late in the third or early in the fourth. And Mark Millen pretty much scored like, seven goals and two assists in the, in the last maybe 17 minutes of that game. And just, it was unbelievable. Incredible game at Yale. I can remember. Uh, yeah. I think it was, we were down maybe 13, six and we wound up winning 14, 13. Uh, and he had scored, he scored the last six goals of the game. It, wherever the ball was on the field, he went and picked it up. You know, we didn't tell him to do that, but you know, if the ball was at the midline out of bounds, the ball was on the, defensive end out of bounds he went and picked it up and kind of took over and uh you know fortunately for us he was able to score all those goals uh I can remember one thing in that game more so than what Mark did um we weren't you know Yale was taking it to us on the defensive end and Ted Ted took the entire defense and goalie out of the game I looked at him I said what the heck are you doing he said well they're not doing anything anyway so let's put these other guys in so he put our backups in backup goalie, three backup defensemen in the game, and they made one stop and it kind of turned the tide for the team. And eventually he put those other guys back in, but he gave those four guys about seven or eight minutes of play in the third quarter and it changed the game. Great. And he, you know, it's a great move when it works, right? Amazing stuff. Exactly. Especially when you got Mark Dillon on the other end. Exactly. If they had scored five goals on us, we would have looked like a dog. So, what year did you become? You became the head coach at UMass in what, 95? 95, yeah, fall 94. Yeah. Fall 94. So, 95 was the first spring season. And, you and know, so, this was a really interesting time. And I remember this pretty, pretty clearly that, you know, Bill Tierney had revolutionized lacrosse with the model of slide and recover defense and slow it down. And, and I remember, you know, you guys at UMass at one point in time did that. And I also remember that there was like, you flipped the switch one year. We're like, you know what? We're not doing that anymore. We're going fun and gun. Yes. And um, I, I don't know if you, if you, if, if this resonates with you, like it did with me, but it really made a big difference for your, for your team. Tell us what it was like to be a new head coach and all the decisions that go <laughs> along with how you're going to play and how you find yourself. Yeah, that was tough. And, and again, like you said, uh, what Princeton was doing and, and, and some of the other teams, Navy had always done it. They were the king of the 6-5 game. Uh, I hired Jim Strube, who was one of your teammates at, at Brown. And we kind of sat down and looked at our roster and said, hey, what, you know, what kind of game are we playing here? And, and we, were, we weren't very deep. So we did, did decide to kind of slow it down on offense and be a little bit more controlled. Mm -hmm. Always at UMass when I played and, uh, you know, for those years you're talking about, the, the people you played against, yep. we were a run-and-gun team. And so we felt, we, we felt good about it, about playing that way, about controlling it, and then playing really disciplined on defense. It's one thing that we really needed to change here at UMass was to yes. be 
disciplined on defense. We weren't as good in the goal as we were in the glory days there, right, with, with Sal and, and some of the other guys. It, it was a conscious decision to do it. We trained that way. Um, we scripted a lot of things on both sides of the ball. We actually scripted um, sometimes the first minute or two on offense of each game. This is what exactly what we're going to do, and we'd go through it in a pregame. Scary stuff, you know. No off scripting. It, it was scary stuff, you know. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it, it worked for us during that time. Um, you know, we were successful. We went to the tournament in 95. Uh, we should have been in the tournament in 96. I felt in 97 we went to the quarterfinals and actually played Princeton and lost 11-9 when they, they won the, the national title. And then after that, um, <clears throat> I think 98, 99, 2000, we went through a time where teams were, you know, they knew how we played. And in recruiting, we struggled based on the fact that people were talking about, hey, they, you must slows the ball down. Do you want to be part of that? And I felt that really affected how we recruited. Yeah. Um, and so we made a conscious decision in 2000, a couple of years later, to try to go up-tempo again and allow the, the guys to, to go out there and play. And we recruited that way. And we were able to recruit uh, Kevin Lavelle and Chris Fiore. Oh, yeah. Matt McFarlane on defense and Mark Morley. We had some great kids that wanted to run up and down and it enabled us to, you know, we, we told them in recruiting, this is the way we're going to play. And then when they came to us, that's the way we played. So um, it was a change. It was a good learning experience for me as yeah. a coach, uh, for us as a staff to, to, to uh, kind of shift. And that shift kind of propelled us into the early 2000s where we were very successful again. Yeah, that's really cool. And it, it's, it's, um, it goes to show you that you can shift and you could have shifted back and had success too. I mean, it's not like just how you're playing. It's kind of like, you know, committing to something um, and being able to coach it well. I'm sure you needed to play when you played fast, you still had to play disciplined defense, you know, but it is kind of nice to be able to recruit and get people excited about, you know, getting up and down and playing that way. Exactly. I, again, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Uh, we still coached the heck out of our guys as much as we could. Um, and, and, and they bought into it. They loved being part of that. You know, yeah. they loved running, you know, and, and said, okay, now we got to condition a little bit more because we got to be in great shape to get up and down. And then they yeah. bought into that. Right. So it was all, all part of it. And I think we became really aggressive on the defensive end. We were a little held back before that we came aggressive. We, we went out, we extended on people. Uh, we asked our guys to be more physical. We got athletes that were more physical. Think of uh, uh, Matt McFarlane and Tom Fallon, who was, you know, six oh, yeah. foot four, 245 pounds, and A.J. Capelli, who was six foot two, 225 pounds, and McFarlane was six three, 220. That was our starting defense. And, you know, when the ball came over the midline and those clears that you're talking about and those long passes, guys were – guys started getting alligator arms, and, and, and that kind of, like, created this uh, – for us, it created this confidence that, hey, not only are we going to push the tempo, we're going to push the intimidation factor on people and try to do our best defensively to turn it up and, and turn it up a notch and get the ball going in transition. Yeah, toughness was definitely um, a calling card. And I remember I was a young head coach at the time, and I remember hearing about these drills they would do at UMass where there were like no rules. I think Andy Shea. Was Andy Shea your assistant at that time? He was. He was. Yes. And, um, so tell me about that because I, I I got a funny story. I actually I actually like did that. I asked my associate AD, hey, do you think I could do this? Like, they're like, yeah. I mean, why not? And so um, 
Yeah, you, you, you know, later, you know. You, you might you might get in trouble today. <laughs> you probably would. Right? Um, and no one really knew kind of what we were doing other than our trainer. And it, so it was Shea. Shea was the culprit. Shea was the guy behind this whole thing. No he, doubt. He was the evil guy, right? He's probably still doing that stuff. Yeah, he could be. Uh, but we called. We had a drill called uh, "Clear the Crease," and basically it was a two-on-two free-for-all. And you roll the ball in, and the offensive guy's supposed to pick it up, and the defensive guy's supposed to check down, and the goalie was supposed to give up rebounds and keep the ball loose. And, and who was going to come up with the ground ball, and who was going to be tougher on the ground ball? And it, at, at times, it wound up being, you know, no sticks, guys grabbing each other, wrestling, fighting each other. Uh, it, it was hilarious half the time, you know. Uh, yeah. No one really got hurt during yeah. that time, which was great, you know. But uh, – there was always that intimidation factor for young guys coming in, oh, yeah. hearing about it and then being a part of it. And it was sort of a, you know, uh, coming to, coming to manhood kind of thing. You know, now I'm a, now I'm at UMass and I'm a, I'm a real lacrosse player kind of guy, you know, it was pretty yeah. fun stuff that, uh, it was. you know, the guys really thrived on it and they, and they loved it. And they, you know, they, they kind of felt because of things like that, that they were going to be tougher yeah. than any way they played. Yeah. Well, we did that um, during like our tryout portion and these poor walk-ons right. just got oh, sure. it was like the older guys were just preying on these young so oh yeah i mean they were just waiting for it i'm, I'm sure yeah. i'm yeah. sure of it and so uh struby was a freshman when i was a senior he coached with you for how many years like eight years seven years something like that yeah no yeah he coached from 95 to 2000 so five years okay okay um so i know one of the things he brought to you um, terminology wise that I hear people I you know every now and then I hear people bust out the terminology the snively look yes, yes. Uh, the snively look is a classic UMass term and what does it mean well snively is catching the ball backhanded right cross-handed backhanded right and over your shoulder right over the shoulder or when you're inside yeah. just being crafty and catching it whether you're coming from the wing or whether you're coming from behind anywhere right yeah. uh, and it really it was from Jim but from I think it derived from Pete Lasagna, right? Who is it? No, no, you're oh, telling me. That's why I wanted to like clarify. I didn't know if you know the actual origins of the Snively look. I know Snively was a coach or somebody, right, in the wing because there's a Snively award. There was a person Snively. Nope. So this is, you're going to laugh at this. This is hilarious. So Paul Hooper was the offensive coordinator for, I don't know, four or five years at Brown. You remember Hoops, right? Yes. And Hoops brought the Snively look, and he was like, you know, when you're an attackman, you got to sneak in behind your guy, especially on man up and on fast breaks. You're the lefty. You got to sneak in, put your stick in front of you, kind of like that guy's Snively whiplash. <laughs> snively whiplash. <laughs> but, of course, it's actually Snively whiplash. But Snively whiplash, the cartoon character, right. is where the Snively look actually comes from. And it is like you got to be sneaky like that guy. And that was Paul Hooper's way of getting us to think about being sneaky. sneaky. But, you know, I just wanted to um, share that with you because I, I knew you'd find it interesting. It's very interesting. Thanks for clarifying. And yeah. Paul, Paul Hooper also uh, was instrumental for us, for Jim Strube and myself, in breaking a 10-man ride. So, I, you know, I, I'm imagining Dom did it all the time at, at Brown. Dom Starger did it all the yeah, time. Yeah, he did. But also, uh, Tony Seaman was doing it at Penn the whole time, and that's where he got really good at it. But what was, what was his um, – what did he teach you? So basically, it was bringing people back, right? So, you know, so it's a seven-on-six on our, on our, you know, offensive end, right? And we're bringing guys back down to their straining line, 
bringing midfielders down to the end of the faceoff wing stripe. Yeah. And, um, you know, stepping down, back down to the ball, basically, right? Yeah. You, have, you have two defensemen and a goalie, but also stepping down to the ball and, and dragging across the midline as well, right? So the way they did it back then, most of the time on a 10-man was on, on the sidelines. So you jumped over on a sideline because all of our clearing was on the sidelines. But you had to jump back to stay on sides, right, if right. the ball was redirected. So Hooper dragged that guy from the opposite side, and yeah. you would throw the ball into him, and then he'd have a great view at the goal with the goal open, at, basically at the faceoff X in that, in that area. And so whenever we played Virginia at the time, because Dom moved on to Virginia in 93, I believe, or 92, right, whenever we played Virginia, we played him a number of years with, you know, when Jim Strube was coaching with us, the Heat 10 man us all the time. And then we were able to we, – we called Hooper. He gave us the skinny. And mm -hmm. we, we were very successful against that 10-man uh, ride. And we still do the same thing today. Yeah. You know, again, you know, it's, it, it's, it, was, it was very successful then. It's very successful now. And so Paul Hooper not only gave us the Snively, but he also gave us how to break the 10-man in red. Well, that guy was just um, an amazing lacrosse mind. He was a coach's son – had a huge influence on me. You know, when I first started coaching at Yale, I went to sit down with him and, you know, and he gave me his notebook, which to this day I still have. It's this red thick notebook with like all of this, all these plays drawn up and all these concepts and like everything from, you know, he was on the staff at Carolina in 86 when they won it. He was yeah. head coach at Vermont. And then he got out of coaching and ended up having an amazing uh, career. And his son played at Virginia. So, right. Yes, one of the all-time best. Now he just fish. He fishes every day. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. He's probably He's taking Pressler out, right? Fishing. Yeah, him and Pre Well, John Hooper, his older brother, and Pressler. That's right. That's what it is. Okay. Gotcha. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. So I want to talk a little bit about your uh, 2006 team and the run you guys made to the national championship. And you kind of ran into maybe one of the best, if not the best, you could argue they're the best team in the history of, I mean, they're in the running for that, you know, I kind of feel like if you guys on any other year, you probably could have won a national championship, but talk about that team. And, and some of those players, um, you had some unbelievable talent, but you played great lacrosse too. You did. Um, well, you know, and obviously it starts you know, straight up the middle uh, with Doc Schneider. He was a freshman. We had gone to the quarterfinals uh, in 2003 and 2005. And, and, you know, up to that point, UMass has never won a quarterfinal game. Uh, and then Doc came in as a freshman, was outstanding in the goal. And that's kind of solidified that. We had been a little uh, up and down in the goal. And finally, we get this guy. It's, it's an amazing story is, you know, we recruited these goalies that are highly rated. We recruit this guy from Peak 200 camp that I used to run. Good old Peak right? 200. Exactly. And, you know, Doc was getting recruited by Gettysburg and UMass. And that was it. And so, you know, we thought, okay, here's this guy. He's, he's a little chubby, you know, he's a little, but he's got great hands. So we'll see what, see what happens. They came for no scholarship. And, um, 
he shows up in the locker room, the first meeting in the locker room in, in the fall. I'm looking around the guy saying hello to everybody. I don't even recognize him. He lost like 35 pounds. He's like 180 pounds. He's a little skinny kid now. So he plays great all year long. We actually had two good goalies. Totally. I mean, we, we had two really good goalies. This kid, Nick Shuba. And, oh, and yeah. I remember that kid. I recruited him. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, Doc wound up winning the job in the second scrimmage in the spring. That's how good both of these guys were. And Nick wound up transferring after that year to Bucknell, and he led the nation in save percentage the next year, believe it or not. Right. right? Wow. So, um, so Doc comes in, he solidifies it. You have Jack Reed uh, on the defensive end, who is just a, an absolute killer. Well, he's an all-time great. Great, great player. First-team All-America here. Three four lefty, total yeah. ass beater, really yeah. slick and smart. Totally, right? Uh, you know, and, and but he's the guy that uh, you'll sit down and talk to him, interview. He's the brightest guy you'll want to meet. And then when he steps on the field, he transforms into a different animal, right? And, and, and he was a, just a great, great leader on the field every day for his four years, right? And then you go through – we always struggled facing off uh, during those years, 2003, 2005, and we face off Jake Dean with a long pole. Uh, and he had done it in high school. He had done it a little bit for us. Kind of the end of the 2005 season, he came around a little bit, was winning yeah. faithless for us. 2006, he was totally dialed yeah. in and won 63, 64% of his face-offs. With his long pole, With and he was long pole. the rake, right? He just raked it. Quick rake every single time. Yeah. Fought for the ground ball. If it was 50-50, he'd come up with it. Had about, uh, I think, four goals. Seven assists on the year, you know, kind of that that, that guy would propel us. Um, scored a, a big goal uh, in, in the semifinal game against Maryland off the faceoff. And then we he won the next one and dished it and we scored. And that was kind of what propelled us to that, to that win. I recruited every single one of those guys. I tried <laughs> to get them, including maybe the best player in Peak 200 camp history, Sean Morris. Sean Morris. <laughs> remember how freaking good Sean he Morris. was at that camp? <laughs> Fantastic. And now Sean Morris went to Rutgers out of high school. Right. For, for Coach Durgel. Bill Durgel convinced him that they were going to win a national title there. So uh, he went and 9-11 happened. He saw it from his dorm room and he came home. And unfortunately for us, he came to us. Another tremendous leader. A guy, you know, five foot nine, you know, was benching at that point, like three, 330, 340, was squatting about, squatting like 450. He was just a power pack, uh, a tremendous athlete. Great goal scorer, great feeder. He was the total package as well. So those three guys, and then Doc, you know, coming in. Those three guys are with us. Yeah. And Doc coming in straight up the middle really, really kind of helped us. And then we had contributions from guys that we hadn't had, you know, for four years. Um, Jamie Yamin, upstate kid, played his best lacrosse, right? Uh, Clay Stabert, right, hadn't played for us for three years as a senior, starts on attack for us and does an incredible job. Jimmy Connolly comes in, right? His older brother, Ryan, plays for us. His dad, Steve, was a captain here. Steve was my uh, coach at uh, the Boston Blazers. Blazers right, right. Yeah. And so, so Jimmy Connolly's a freshman and scores, you know, over 30 goals that year, right? Uh, just tremendous contributions from a lot of guys. Our, our, on defense, Dave Von Voigt and Sean Krieger, two really unheralded guys as sophomores. They start with Jack Reed and 
I tell you, Jack Reed busted these guys' balls mercifully, constantly, every day, right? And it made those guys better players. And that kind of what formulated us as a group. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, we were a little up and down during the year. We, you know, we beat Hofstra in the first game. We lose to Albany. Albany was kind of just coming on. Mm-hmm. You know, that – that's when Albany was getting really, really, really yeah. good. They had Resoterrits yep. and uh, – They had all – yep. Um, and Thompson at that time, yep. right? Yep. And then Mitty. Yep. Uh, very good team. And uh, and we went and beat Loyola. You know, we lost to Georgetown that year. We kind of felt like we got lucky because Hofstra went on a run. You know, they were 17-1, and one, mm-hmm. and then our only loss was to us, and they were one of the top seeds. So we sneak in the tournament. And they send us to Cornell and, you know, and, and nobody. I remember Lee Felsmo saying, you know, Cornell's going to kill us and, you know, all this stuff. And, and, and Jack Reed, you know, before the game was on the bus screaming. We had a, a, what our associate ADs, now the head AD at Rhode Island, Thor Bjorn is on the bus and he's sitting, in fr- he's sitting behind me. And Jack Reed is screaming on the back of the bus at our team how, how they think that they're going to kick our ass and, Lee Felsmo this and Lee Felsmo that and right and all these things and I turn around and I look at this guy and he's like he's so fired up my my AD <laughs> and we go out and we play they, they were really really strong team at the time Cornell strong attack they had uh the two middies Hall probably the Lucas and, and um Max Seabolt he's a freshman yeah. and he yeah. killed us you know he had like five goals in the game back and forth game we win at the end and then great, we get go to go back to play uh, Hofstra down at Stony Brook that year. And uh, good game to start. Hofstra takes off on us 10-5 um, in, in the third quarter. And it looks like, you know, Hofstra's going to beat us in, in the game. And, and uh, we chip away. Jimmy Connolly scores a goal. We, so all these things happen. We win this great Jack Reed and Jake Dean on the faceoff. It's about a minute and a half ground ball off of a faceoff. I could talk about this forever. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rory Pedrick scores a huge goal. We're man up. The other coaches are telling me to call timeout. I'm like, no. He goes down and scores in transition, man up, because we turn the ball over. So we go into overtime. We win the faceoff. And then an incredible thing happens. Uh, Rhett Garber, who is obviously uh, uh, Dick Garber's grandson, Ted Garber's son, connects with Jimmy Connolly, who's, uh, you know, Steve Connolly's son, Ryan Connolly's brother. Uh, you know, both of those guys connect. The legacies of those families connect. Amazing. Scoring overtime to go to the Final Four. It's just incredible, incredible story. And, again, once we get, once we get there, it's gravy. Yeah. Our guys are uh, riding high. You before. guys beat a Maryland team that in the semifinals. That, so that was the first year that Denver made the NCAA tournament. And we lost – to them um, in the first round, and they were great. I mean, they had Joe Walters. And who was the midi? The kid, um, unbelievable athlete. Like he was like everybody wanted this kid. And like Cottle was in his yeah. heyday, you know, of like owning the lacrosse world, and and you know, it was just unbelievable talent on that. They were stacked on D. They were stacked in the midfield on attack. They were stacked everywhere. Great group, well coached. Yeah, Loff was still there with with, with uh, Coach Cottle. Yeah. Andy Copeland was there with oh, yeah. Coach Cottle at the time. And, um, you know, again, we kind of scrap in the game. Doc 
and our defense, Jason Miller, who was coaching with us at the time, you know, uh, they had played Princeton the game before and he talks to Metsy and Metsy says, listen, just, just slide adjacent to everything on their sweeps and they're not going to feed the ball. So we kind of come up with the scheme that we're going to do. Jack Reed kind of just buys into it. He hammered three of their midfielders, you know, off the sweep, just flying upfield. And fortunately, we, we hang in there, and Doc makes the saves, and we win the game. So here we are. We're going to the national title. It's like, holy cow, how did we, how did we get here? You know, um, you know, we, we went just, you know, yeah, we're getting to the final four. Everybody's fired up. Now we're playing for a national title. You know, and, and how do we get our guys to, to relax enough to, to be able to play and, and, and play this great Virginia team? And, you know, you have no rest. You know, obviously, Virginia, as you said, great team. But what, why they were so good was because of their depth. Yeah. You know, they were throwing out three face-off guys. They had three midfields. Their attack was unbelievable group with Pasquet and um, I think it was Billings. and, and Matt, Ward, Matt Ward. Ward. He was the MVP of it. It's just incredible, incredible group. Um, Glad we, we hung in there. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we hung in there for, you know, three quarters and then – you know, the can opened up and uh, we, we fouled and, and, and uh, they took over. They, they won it. But incredible team, incredibly proud of the team yeah. and just incredibly really proud of what, what they brought in terms of leadership. And that was sort of a, a model for us. And I, I, I just remember those three guys, Jake Dean and Jack Reed, and this is for anybody that's listening, and, and, and Sean Morris coming in and saying, hey, coach, we want to do – this was before the season started. We want to do something different this year we want to practice on Sundays and have Mondays off to do like the football model and stuff. I'm like, well, listen, at the time I had two young kids that Sundays we came into work in the morning, but we left in the afternoon and we spent time with the kids. That was really the only time during the week that you could do it. So I said, I don't want to do this. How about we do this guys? How about we don't drink the entire season? And the guys looked at me and they were like, wait, what? But we don't know if we can do that. Well, why not? Have we ever tried it? Has anyone ever tried it? Has any team at UMass ever tried it? I don't think so. So we tried it and we, you know, they did a good job. And so I think that was one of the things that yeah. they kind of, they grabbed onto as well. As the season moved on, we remained strong and healthy and, 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 and fit. And we were ready to go once those playoffs started. So that was sort of a model for, you know, uh, moving forward with our UMass teams uh, from year to year. I bring the captains in and say, okay, what do you want to do? You know, term, what do you mean? Well, are we drinking? Are we not drinking? You know, how's this going to work? You know, some teams will give me some dates that they're going to drink. Some teams say, no, we're not going to drink. And, you know, more, more, more times than not, it's the teams that don't drink are more, the more successful focused teams, especially early part of the week Monday Tuesday Wednesday uh, they're feeling great during those days and 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 they can actually recover better without using the alcohol so no doubt. Uh, that, that was a lesson learned for, for all of us including myself uh, during that time yeah amazing stories so let's fast forward now now to the present um, give us some give us a thought on sort of where you're at now I mean you've been you've been coaching as, as a head coach for 28 years and you've been an assistant for another six or whatever you've been coaching for a while you're always learning um, where are you at right now with how you're trying to build your team culture yeah uh, that's ever evolving it's a really good question um, you know we're, we're, we're focused on especially where with the cost of 
your college education, we've tried to focus on really good students. Um, you know, they can get academic money here or other, other places. Uh, people that are continue to uh, put aside personal accolades for the betterment of the team. Yeah. One thing I learned from Coach Garber and Coach Beckman I mentioned before, uh, you know, I'm willing to be one of those spokes, right? You know, because everybody that you recruit, and a lot of teams go through this, everybody you recruit, um, they're the best kid at their, their, their high school, best athlete at their high school, county, state, et cetera. And when you get here, there's still only one ball to play on offense, and you still need to play team defense. You, you can't just go off on your own and do what you want. So it's, it's, it's a willingness to be able to do that, uh, to find people you know, that are willing to do that, be part of that. And that, that may not always be the upper echelon kid. That may be the unheralded kid, the, the, the four-star, the three-star kid that we're going to get here at UMass that wants to work really hard. Um, and then when they get here, have the, have the team embrace each other. Have the seniors embrace the young guys. Have them mentor those guys. Uh, one of the things that UMass have been very, very fortunate to have is when you think of it, it has nothing to do with lacrosse. The food here, we've been number one food in the country the last four years. Wow. So all of our, all of our players, all of our older guys still eat in the dining hall. So we encourage That's those. amazing guys. for the team culture, isn't it? It is. So we encourage those guys, get to the dining hall. But first off, get to the dorm that the freshmen and sophomores are living in. Bring them to lunch. Bring them to dinner. Sit down with them. Have conversations. Talk to them about how hard it is that they were in the same position, you know, at one point that these guys are in now, the young guys. Embrace those guys. You know you have to – you know they have to play well, or at least in practice, for us to be a good team. So embrace that. Bring those guys together. And so our critical mass is, is as tight as possible. And if anybody flies, pulls out of that, that we can grab them and bring them back. You know, so that's kind of where we are in terms of the culture recruiting quality people always, recruiting quality students so they can, you know, the best students are also some of the best learners, some of the best guys out there on the field that, that can retain uh, the information that we're coaching, right? Um, but also fostering an environment that is very healthy for and, and inclusive for everybody to be part of. You, you know, as a freshman, you don't feel like, hey, I'm not part of this team. You are part of this team. You're an essential part of this team. Well, it's great too because – if you don't, you know, you, the, the team's all together at practice in the locker room. So that always happens. And then the team's usually all together when they're out on Saturday night. But it's nice to get them together, not in the locker room and not at a party and have them together, you know, in yeah. a dining hall, just hanging out. Yeah. Very, very important. Right. And, and <clears throat> the time typically in the past was spent away from each other, like you're saying. And then. Yeah. The only time that they were together on, on, on away from lacrosse, away from the locker room, was at a party, you know, in a party situation, right? Uh, in a house or w wherever it is, right? Uh, and now they can have those good conversations, I think, with each other, um, you know, sober first off, right? Yeah, exactly. It, you know, you know, and, and but but just have real conversations about where where each other are at. Yeah. So let's um, let's take that concept of, you know, what you're looking for and how you develop character into, how do you, how are you developing your individual players? I mean, you got to recruit kids. You just sort of alluded to the fact that you want good learners. I'm sure you want good athletes you can develop. What do you, how do you do that uh, for both either side of the ball, both sides of the ball? Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that most kids struggle with is, is shooting. 
and off the ball play. So during our off season or what have you, right after our fall ball is over, we have about four weeks, four and a half weeks to work on with individuals or small groups now. And most of that time is done shooting, right? Uh, quick moves, footwork stuff, talking about that for them, trying to focus on shooting the ball uh, overhand, right? Uh, especially at certain angles, uh, you know, in the alleys or from the wing or trying to get underneath, really focusing on that, um, you know, for those guys and drilling that as much as we can. Uh, right now, Doc Schneider does a lot of that work with, with our players. Even though he was a, a goalie, you know, and a defensive guy as a player, he coaches our offense here now. It does a super job. And again, most of the focus is on technique and footwork for those guys. And then obviously the hands, the hands part of it, right? Um, defensively, that's Craig McDonald, who's been with us now for five years as an assistant. It's a lot of footwork, right? A lot of shell drill stuff. Um, you talked about slide and recover in the past. We're working through still a lot of that stuff for the younger guys in particular, right? But it's ladder drills. It's 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 using ladders uh, for breakdowns. Uh, it's using ladders for retreats, right? Um, just really kind of getting that footwork stuff done uh, for our guys on on a daily basis. You know, it's it's really not much more than that, right? Um, you know, we'll do all the all the holds and you know drives. You know, defenders you know, against defenders or defenders against, uh, you know, 100 against 50, you know, the, the offense guy's 50% and we're defending, we're, we, you know, we're, we're going to drive him upfield in, in what we do, right? Sometimes we're going to try to roll guys back in what we do, depending on who, what team it is. Listen, all those things are done <clears throat> from not only from this time during the year, but it's done from day one. We took three weeks and before we started fall ball and we did individuals with our guys. Uh, and then we moved into practice and we moved back out to individuals during this time of year. Because once the season starts, it's, 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 it's still time that we take each and every day. We take 10 or 15 minutes to work on individual stuff in every practice. But more of it focuses on the team stuff during, during the spring. So it sounds like you guys are using, you know, like the old school days when we could only go with four kids at a time. And yeah. For me, that was literally my I don't want to say my favorite time of the year but it was a very kind of sacred time of the year because number one as a coach you got to really know your players when you only had four of them out there and I was a head coach but I, I got out there I liked doing it my feet right. would hurt at the end of the week because I oh, yeah. my feet for you know like however many you know 10 hours right you know, times two two times a week but it was also a time as a coach when you really start teaching individual stuff you learn so much you do. You learn a lot. Um, you also, you know, you find out who's coachable, uh, who can retain, right? And, and and not only that, because we still were allowed to do some team practice. Yeah. Uh, we have four hours of team practice that we use. So who can translate that into when you go six on six or when you play full field? Who can bring the individual uh, teaching and learning into, you know, the full field process? So it's important. And so what we kind of do with, with, with our, with our group is uh, half of our team is with the strength coach on another field, right? Not with us. And then we have uh, the other half of the team for a half hour, right? And we can work on uh, defensive stuff, middies and, and close defensemen and poles go with, with Mac and then attackmen, and then half the middies go with doc. 
and then we flip-flop the middies halfway through. So everybody gets uh, at least a half hour of not only individual training, but also they get that speed training with their strength coach, uh, again, away from us uh, on another field. So uh, we, we pack it into a half, an hour, and then after we complete that hour, the guys are in a weight room for 45 minutes. So uh, they're, they're getting a pretty good workout even in, in the off season when we're kind of uh, laying off of them a little bit. You know, during that time, we have a total of eight hours, and they're, getting, they're, they're doing a little more uh, uh, self-directed stuff on their own, going out in small groups on their own with, with, with some of the leaders shooting and, and getting reps in, in that regard. So we'll cool. work in that regard. So they're still getting their work, um, but we're compacting it into what our schedule is for Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Tuesday, Thursday. I've, uh, that's really interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about something that I've been really, really interested in lately. I've sort of been gradually getting more and more interested, but it really goes back to probably how you grew up as an athlete and how I grew up as an athlete of unstructured play and free play and pickup. Because that's how we learned to be athletes. Like back in the day, you and me, I guarantee, we've never talked about this, but we didn't depend on our coach to make us into a good player growing up because we played the games enough. In fact, we're probably good enough at several sports to be pretty good. And whereas these days, everybody depends on their coach to teach them the skills, to rep it out, to all of this. Now, one of the things that I've read about and listened to some podcasts and had some podcasts on is the idea of the reason why this free play is so important is because it's pretty much puts the decision making on the athlete, the decision for everything, the decision for how you're going to guard somebody, what you're going to do without the ball, what you're going to do when you get the ball. When we think about reps, we think about like, we got to get better at our shooting. We got to get better at our footwork. And we do, there's no question. Um, but so often we're forgetting about the fact that perceiving what's happening around you is the first step. And then making a decision of whatever skill to use or what to do is the next step. And then executing that decision with a skill is the third step. And I think majority of the time we think about just get reps and let's work on our skills when really, you know, most kids can do a lot more than they actually ever do. And you sort of mentioned this, how does it translate? You know, when I, how are we translating, you know, as a player translating what we're working on to the game? And so I just wanted to ask you about your thoughts on that topic and as well as, you know, how do you actually sort of think about teaching decision-making? Yeah, um, good question. I haven't thought too much about it uh, that you bring it up, but um, decision-making is on the guys, I feel. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, we grew up playing as many sports as we possibly could. Uh, you know, I think one of the things in terms of playing full-time lacrosse, some kids get burnt out of it. They, they, you know, they stop listening. They, they, they don't um, work as hard as they should when they have the stick and sticks in their hands. Um, but I think what we do here at UMass and what, what – and this is one of Coach Garber's strengths, was he would put us in sets and he would teach us the basics of an offense. And then he'd say, okay, guys, go play. Yeah. And then – like you're saying, we had to make those decisions on our own. And we, we are constantly with our guys telling them, listen, we can help you. We can show you, right? But eventually on the field, 
we're going to allow you to make these decisions and we trust you to make these decisions, right? These are, this is, these are A, B, and C, potentially your options, but we want you to be an athlete and, 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 and show us, right, what you have inside you as an athlete, right, as a player and excel. And we're going to kind of let you go from there, right? If we ever, if we ever made Sean Morris or uh, Jimmy Connolly or any great player or Mark Millen uh, versus Yale in, you know, 1993, if we ever made him uh, play within something really tight, they never would have been the players that they, that they right. had. So it's always been our philosophy to kind of guide and then allow them to go out and find themselves, right? So it was, it's always been like a, a seek and discover method of teaching. And when Fizz said that was one of, the, one of the things that you could do with older kids. Young kids, you really had to be structured. Some, some of the older kids, you had to kind of let those guys find out on their own what worked, what didn't work. And we've always tried to do that here at UMass. But I haven't really thought too much about that is it recently. But again, we're letting our guys play. But it fits into what you grew up with and, and what you're doing. You know, there's, there's no question you need structure and you need to work on things. You need to show people. But at the end of the day, they need to figure some things out on their own, right? They do. I feel more comfortable coaching that way than I did from 95 to 99. Yeah. Right? And right. really kind of restricting what people did. I, I feel better uh, as a coach. I feel more productive as a coach to allowing our athletes to be exactly that great athletes. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And I think that's why, why when we think about multi-sport athletes, right, everybody loves multi-sport athletes, but I've been giving this some thought too. And I think some of it has to do with when we think of multi-sport athletes, especially think about basketball as being like the best translation of a multi-sport athlete. Yeah. And I think honestly, it come, it's because in basketball, they play pickup most of the time. The majority of the basketball is pickup. And that's where you learn the nuances of, of, of somebody's guarding me or they're overplaying me and I'm going to do something different or how to guard somebody. And, you know, the little chess match of the, within a matchup, you know, it's like, you know, how you're like, we have to like talk about who a lefty is. I mean, you, you, you know, if you're, if you have that sort of fluency, you know who the lefties are, right. You know, that guy's going to be coming back left every time. And I think it has to do with, with that a lot. I, I would agree with you. I would also um, consider uh, as a wrestler, high school wrestler, when you jump out there on the mat, it's mm -hmm. mano, mano. It's you against yeah. your opponent only. And there's a lot of structure within wrestling, but there's also a lot of discipline within wrestling in terms of weight control, mm -hmm. uh, emotional discipline, right? When you get out there on the mat, you can't, uh, you know, in the first 30 seconds, blow yourself out, right? Because right. it's a six-minute match longer, right? Um, but it also, in terms of mental toughness, in terms yeah. of preparation, uh, it really gets you ready, I think, for, uh, you know, the college game. Because ultimately, when we play, right, in tight games, it comes down to one-on-ones, like you're talking about. It comes down to someone beating, breaking somebody down. Yeah. Not always, hey, we're going to run this play. I know this guy's going to be open because we're setting a pick. Someone's got to create. Someone's got to create. And so that, that mano y mano piece of wrestling, all right, uh, you know, and, and I like the, the, the analogy with basketball because there's so much 
that 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 comes over into lacrosse. But the mental part of it, the mental toughness part of wrestling, has really helped a lot of lacrosse players move forward. Yeah, interesting. I think box lacrosse. You know, you've had your share of great Canadians over the years. Um, I think box lacrosse creates this sort of level of fluency simply because there's less control. You know, there's there's when we played, you sort of mentioned it, Coach Garber. You know, would give you a set. You know, at Brown, we did our we had our own little you know the little uh, fish hook play, the dart play that. That's stuff that we just did. I mean, coaches didn't actually make us practice it. Right. Given those, for example, were just something that, you know, I'd be like, you know, to my boy Bernie Bonanno that I played attack with. We went to high school and college. I'd be like, hey, hey, hey special. You know, we would say a little, our little plays together. Um, I feel like in box across that happens a lot because of the shot clock, really. That there's just not a lot of time. And people are getting more reps. It's smaller sided. And I feel like box players in general have a level of fluency. Of, of how to move without the ball, of how to feed better and see things happening on the other side of the floor because they're reading that off-the-ball movement. Obviously, they're two-man games, and their fluency in feeding and finishing is off the charts because it's a real problem they have to solve. But I think it's, it's, it's really interesting when you sort of look at how these environments kind of create the players even before they get to you next. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I would agree, especially with those Canadians in terms of uh, their ability to do everything on 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 the field, you know, in, in a larger space, uh, that that sort of freedom for those guys and not getting pounded like they do in the indoor game mm -hmm. is a breath of fresh air for them. So I think our, our field game is, you know, you know, for for those guys that come off the box season in the summertime, and they come to us even though they're a little beat up, it's 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 really a pleasure to come back and and not get so beat up and and to be able to get to spots on the field that are going to make them successful. It's really, really cool thing to see. Yeah, it really is. Um, okay. Last question for you, coach. Um, what talk, talk to us a little bit about recruiting um, and sort of uh, what, what kind of person you want, the kind of athlete you want, and maybe just touching on position by position, what you're looking for in, 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 at UMass. Yeah. I, I mentioned it a little bit before, right? So it, obviously um, we want quality character guys. You know, uh, most important, you know, things that, that uh, we talk to the high school coaches, talk to the club coaches about, you know, the kids, are they workers, right? Is the guy that's going to work his butt off when he gets here. Um, you watch him in the high school games, you know, uh, are they listening to the coaches, right? In timeouts, mm -hmm. halftime, or they have their heads up in the stands. Uh, do they uh, celebrate with their teammates or do they celebrate by themselves, you know, after, after a goal or a teammate's goal or somebody, somebody passed them the ball and, you know, assisted them and they scored a nice goal. Do they go to that guy and, and congratulate him? So a lot of different things in there in terms of personality wise. And obviously we have to sit down and, and meet with them. Uh, but as you mentioned before, toughness is a key. Obviously speed is a, is a key. We're not so concerned about size. Obviously, size can can help, right? The bigger kids are going to be uh, sometimes more forceful, uh, especially at the faceoff X. If you look at any of the uh, the faceoff guys in Division One, they're in the sixty percent. There's no small guys like me doing it, right? They're all bigger kids. They're all big, powerful kids. Um, we're also looking for on attack. We want guys that are going to be able to play off the ball, right? Know the game off the ball because. You're so used to having a ball on your stick in high school because your coach gives you the ball every time. And what do you do without it when you get here? Or when you don't have it, do you just stand there? So if they can learn that at an earlier age, 
right, and be really good off the ball, they'll be okay when they get here. We'll be able to, to, to help, help them move forward with it. Uh, midfielders, we want two-way guys. We're, we're playing two-way guys here. Uh, they're going to play offense, defense, transition, and then come on off. So it's guys that have the willingness to do it, first off, right, um, but also have the ability to do it. Yeah, you know, that's hard. It uh, takes great physicality. To be able to it does, and it, and it also takes desire. I mean, you you know, yeah. right now with the shot clock, you have to play defense for, you know, 70 seconds, 65 seconds. It's not like the two, three-minute thing that they, we used to have. Right. Uh, and then defensively, same thing. You know, obviously, we want agility. Uh, we want some strength. doesn't matter how big you are. Uh, you have to be mean. You know, uh, you're not going to be able to cover the best attackman in the country with being a laid-back dude, right? You you have to have something to you. You have to have some shit to you to be able to cover people. Um, but also, you have to have a willingness to be part of something, like we're saying, and be a leader uh, to lead others within what we do on defense. Uh, and in the goal, you know, I leave that to Doc. Doc, yeah. Doc, Doc uh, is looking for a certain personality. Obviously, hand speed is great. Um, uh, looking for a guy that's going to work really, really hard to, to, to develop over time, potentially, maybe develop in one year for us. Uh, but just guys that are workers. And in general, uh, we want people who are going to work hard. And, and Jamie, you mentioned it. If we're going to get the, uh, a top kid or a second-tier kid here, um, they have to work hard. If we want to compete with the people we're competing with, there's no way around it. And everybody, there's 70-somewhat teams in Division One. Everybody works hard. Uh, we have to work as hard, if not harder, than every one of those groups. So we want to make sure that those people are ready for that. And, I, you know, when we sit down with people here in the office, I explain that to them. This is going to be hard, right? You're, you're, you're potentially in Eisenberg School of Management. It's a, a, a top business school in terms of public institutions in the Northeast, right? It's going to be really hard. They're going to challenge you, want, to be, want you to be part of their community. And then you're going to buckle down with lacrosse and everything that we do and what we expect of you. This is going to be a really hard deal. And if you're not ready for that, this isn't the right place for you. And I think and I hope that every Division One coach is having those conversations with their recruits because that's what this is all about. Um, and, and they have to be ready uh, and willing, you know, once they get here. And, and really, it's it's the preparation before getting here as well, preparing right. of continuing to work very, very hard with your high schools, with your high school coaches, with your teachers, with your parents until you get here. And then it's a four year process from there. How much video do you watch of recruits outside of their, you know, the normal highlight film? Uh, as much as we can, you know, uh, we'll ask for updated stuff. You know, someone send us something, we'll go watch them. We'll ask for updated. Anytime they're in most of these kids now, anytime they go to a tournament, they have the availability to get it. Mm -hmm. So any kind of updates from the summer to the fall and into the spring, if you have updates, pass it on. So, you know, we'll watch it, uh, you know, you know, and, and you know, we'll watch film for a minute and a half and we kind of know, you know, from that minute and a half, you know, it's not just highlight stuff. If it's a quarter or what have you, we try to watch that as well. What do you think about this idea? I've thought about this a lot that, you know, everybody gives a highlight video, and, 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 a, and a good player, they play enough games where they can come up with a lot of highlights, especially because not all the games are that competitive. And you can be, like, impressed with a skill or a move um, or some athleticism or whatever. Um, but 
What do you think about kids putting together, I don't know, let's just say they play uh, six games, five games in a weekend in the summer, and they put together, you know, a, a video of their, of their touches. And not, not, not just meaningful touches. Like, they're, they're, listen, I want a video of all your dodges, your shots, your feeds, and then give me, uh, you know, give me some, give me like two minutes of off-ball movements. Um, something along those lines. I mean, I feel like, you know, you could do that yourself, but it just takes forever to get through the games. You can't see anything. You don't know who anybody is. It's like, you know, you and me, our eyes are, have, have, you know, you're not wearing glasses right now, but I'm guessing you might have a hard time seeing on your phone the way these young guys are <laughs> watching highlight videos on the phone. That ain't happening with me. Right. Um, but, but I was just curious, and I, had, I haven't even really asked about this, um, but I do a lot of that because I do a ton of video analysis for athletes and we kind of break down their games that way and I'm like man if I was a coach I would like to see if I'm interested in a kid the highlight video is going to pique my interest but then as a follow-up you know give me give me a seven or eight minute video where I can just look at I mean a lot of times the almost plays that you can't put in a highlight video yeah you know yeah. Are, are like great plays or very telling plays on on things that you know you might you might want to know about I like it I like the idea I mean I think it's um if it's all touches, you know, then, then, then how do you do it? How do you, no, maybe not, but how do you do it with defense, right? Yeah. Do, do every time they, they're guarding someone, whether they scored on or not, and they don't want to put a – All your one-on-ones, and then give us some – I don't know, give us three minutes of your adjacent defense play. Give me three minutes of your crease play. Give me three minutes of man down or something along those lines. And just give <laughs> us plays, whether they were goals or not, you know. Yeah, I, I like it. I mean, ultimately – as you mentioned, we're never sure who they're playing against. Yeah. And the one thing with all these club games that you watch, you mentioned it as well. The intensity level is not even close to what we would have at practice here or, or, or any practice that you've ever coached. So, you know, how do you get it out of there? The, the best thing for us is live. It always is. Always is. And so you see all those touches. You see how they interact. You, you see – what they give for the time that they're on the field. And if we're not seeing a guy three times, four times live before there's an offer, uh, shame on us. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I, I think you need that time. I mean, there's, obviously there's guys that you yeah. watch once or twice and you go, wow, this kid's dynamite. But the other kids that uh, for the most part that we're all getting, you do need to see them live for a few times. So that those prospect events that kids are coming to, they're like the best thing for us. Yeah. And, 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 and those aren't always the most competitive situations either, but you can see a lot within it. You can see everything that they do during that practice. And then, then during the play time of those yeah. days. I agree. I mean, there's no, you, there's no substitute for live. The problem with live is there's way too many kids and way too many events and not enough time. And I think that with the way recruiting's going now, you know, seeing a kid three or four times, that would be great if you watch, if you watch four full games of a player, um, that would be pretty good. But these aren't full games. These are 50-minute games, right? And so there might be nine middies. And so, like, they're, yeah. honestly, it's like it's the sample size, even with four full games, is probably not enough to really know a player like you do. Like, after a season, you know a kid, right? You know a lot about them. And, and so um, that's why I was kind of wondering about this sort of almost highlight video concept because it's not going to replace in person. But it might give you a chance to actually dig in. And we all know that whatever we thought we saw live is not the same as what we saw on film. Right. 
So oh. you thought somebody was awesome and they're like, eh, it wasn't so yep. good. You thought yep. somebody was terrible. It's like, you know what? That wasn't so bad. Yep. I agree. I agree with you. I think you're on to something, man. Yeah, maybe. All right, man. Well, listen, Greg, um, have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for coming on. It was just an absolute pleasure to talk lacrosse with you and look forward to doing it again sometime. Thanks, Jamie. I really appreciate it. Have a good Thanksgiving, man. All right, buddy. Take care. Well. The Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.